0: Good morning. Good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Welcome to Christ City. Nothing moves forward in a story except through conflict. Nothing moves forward in a story except through conflict. Those are the words of Robert McKee, renowned story consultant and teacher to countless writers, filmmakers. Um, and actors who in turn have made or been part of creating works ranging from Frozen and Big Hero 6 to Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones. I was first introduced to Robert McKee's work back when I attended seminary in Southern California and for a season I attended a church in Hollywood. Uh, Many of my friends at the church who had moved to LA to be part of the film industry knew of his work or they would participated in his seminars or classes. Nothing moves forward in a story except through Conflict sometimes that conflict is external with others or with nature Sometimes that conflict is internal within the character and usually it's a it's a combination. I Was reminded of Robert McKee's words when I watched this week the latest installment in the spider-man series no way home anybody else seen it a few okay Uh, It it just came out on digital release this week, uh, and I'd been eager to watch it when it was released in theaters in mid-December, but that was right when Omicron was hitting uh, our shores, and it was right before we were traveling to see uh, family for Christmas. And so so I've been waiting for three months. I've been waiting patiently and impatiently as well. But I've been waiting to see it, and it finally happened. It did not disappoint. There's a particular line in there about uh, a hip youth pastor that made me crack up. So if you haven't seen it, you have something to look forward to. But throughout the film, young Peter Parker is is certainly faced with external conflict, with supervillains galore. But he's also faced with internal conflict, with dilemmas and difficult decisions and no easy answers. There's one particular moment where he has to make a really hard choice between what he wants to do and what he needs to do. What he wants to do and what he needs to do. And actually, if you've seen the film, you'll, you'll know that there are actually several of these moments throughout the film, where our hero has to choose either this path or that with no way to, to, to bridge the difference, no way to, to get both or to avoid the choice altogether and, and, and what Peter chooses in each moment both reveals who he is and shapes who he is. All of us know the challenge of being faced with impossible choices perhaps between what we want to do and what we know we should do perhaps in choosing where we spend our limited time or energy or resources or money my wife Carolyn and I have definitely had moments where we looked at each other and we we wondered if we had enough energy to keep both of our kids alive and our marriage as well we've definitely talked about how to split our time between friends and family and work and kids and Sabbath and vacation and a hundred other demands on our time. We've definitely wondered if we can afford to raise our kids in this city while both working nonprofit jobs. Author and activist Lynn Twist captures this feeling so poignantly. She writes, for me and for many of us our first waking thought of the day is I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is I don't have enough time. And whether true or not that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate. We're already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack, this internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudices, and our arguments with life. Anyone else feeling that? Should I just leave it there? Just just get, give this moment to sit with that. We just heard Andrea read us a story from Mark's Gospel where Jesus heals someone but it comes seemingly at the expense of someone else. Now many of you know how the story ends and and we'll get there but I wanted to pause the story at this moment in time because this moment is one we can identify with. The not enoughness, the dilemma, the reality that that going through one door will necessarily mean that we're closing another one or another one is closed to us. Whether in ourselves or in the lives of those we know and love or in the neighborhoods and city and the world that we live in, it can seem like there's always too much need and not enough. Time, money, energy, resources, power. There's a term used to describe the situation where someone or some group has to lose in order for someone else or some other group to win you may be familiar with it. Zero sum game. Zero sum game. We might think of a budget as a zero sum game. Unless you can magically make money appear, not gonna make any smart comments about that, but if you, if, unless you can make magic money magically appear you're working with a set amount, right? You spend more on one thing means you gotta spend less on another thing. Or our time can be a zero sum game game. There are only so many hours in the week. There was a saying when I was in college that that we want to do three things. Study, sleep, and have a social life and there's only time for two. Or more recently as we figure out what life looks like as, as, as different ones of us emerge uh, from COVID in different ways and with different energy for friendships and community and commuting to work and and being in person and even even for church. Much of life is a zero-sum game. Limited resources and difficult decisions on what to do with them. And let me be clear, there is a goodness to those limitations. There is a maturity in recognizing that we are finite beings. That in the words of the prayer Lisa shared a few weeks ago, we are workers, not master builders. We are ministers, not messiahs. It is good and right to acknowledge we cannot do it all. And it is the sign of a healthy soul and a healthy spirituality to live with intention and with conscious decision as fully as we can within the limitations of our humanness. But let me also be clear about what we will see today. When it comes to the grace of God, When it comes to the salvation of God, when it comes to the liberation of God, when it comes to the healing of God, the justice of God, the love of God, there is no zero-sum game. Here's the scene. After Jesus has the encounter with the legion-possessed man living among the tombs in the region of the Gerasenes, a Gentile region, which Matthew talked about last week, Jesus returns with his disciples to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, And once again, a crowd gathers around to hear him teach. Verse 22, Jairus, one of the synagogue leaders, came forward. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he pleaded with him, My daughter is about to die. Please come and place your hands on her so that she can be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. For a man like Jairus, a synagogue leader, a a prominent member of the community, to to fall, to to throw himself at Jesus' feet, and to beg him to heal his daughter, was an amazing act of humility, humiliation, and of faith, and of desperation. And Jesus goes. Jesus goes. That's the response. Jesus went. With him, Jesus, the, the famed question asker, doesn't interrogate Jairus. He doesn't ask him why he felt the need to put on this public show. He doesn't, he doesn't hem and haw. He went with him. And I believe there's someone here who needs to hear the word that Jesus hears you. Jesus hears your prayer. Jesus hears your faith. Jesus hears your request. Jesus hears your desperation. Jesus Hears and help is on the way. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that help looks like. And you may not know what that help looks like. But it is on the way. Jairus comes to Jesus, pleads with him to heal his daughter. Jesus goes with him, as does most of the crowd. And then, verse 25 a woman was there who had been bleeding for 12 years. Now, all the Bible translations try to phrase this as, as, as carefully and euphemistically as possible, as will I, because the condition here described is a sensitive one. Essentially, her menses, her monthly period, did not stop. Had not stopped for 12 years. So obviously, she was in a lot of physical discomfort. But not only that. According to the law of Moses in Leviticus 15, whenever a woman menstruated, she became ceremonially unclean. That is unable to participate in worship or religious ritual for 7 days. Anyone who touched her during her time, that during that time would also become unclean. Anything she touched would become unclean and anyone who touched anything she touched would become unclean. Then in Leviticus 15 verse 25 it describes this woman's particular situation. It says that as long as a woman had a discharge of blood she would be considered unclean and so according to the law of Moses this woman had been unclean for 12 years. I know many of us carry anxiety and perhaps even trauma about uh, you know how, how the Old Testament has been interpreted uh, specifically, some of the regulations that, that, that reflect what seem like outdated or harmful attitudes to our bodies. And, and especially for where it relates to women in, in, in patriarchal contexts. Uh, full disclosure, the first part of Leviticus 15, you can read the whole thing. The first part of Leviticus 15 is about men's bodily emissions. So that's fun for teenagers to go and read. We could talk more about ceremonial purity. We could talk about what exactly that meant. But the fact of the matter is that for this woman, her physical ailment resulting from a natural bodily rhythm gone awry meant that she could not worship in the temple. She could not participate in religious rituals. She could not be touched by friends or family without making them unclean. She could not bear children which in those days especially was one of the marks of a a so-called good woman. And thus most likely she had been separated from meaningful contact, from supportive community, and from any sense of hope for 12 long years. Like Jairus, she was desperate. Moreover, it says she had suffered a lot under the care of many doctors. She had spent everything she had without getting any better. In fact, she had gotten worse. To quote uh, Rochelle Samuels, uh, a master's paper that I discovered online while I was doing my research, Rochelle Samuels put it in these memorable words, she was facing physical pain, emotional drain, and financial strain. Physical pain, emotional drain, and financial strain. But, verse 27, because she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothes. She was thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Now remember, this woman is ceremonially unclean. She knows that. She's reminded of that every day of her existence. And everything and everyone that she would touch would become unclean. As far as she was aware, that would include Jesus if she was able to reach him. That would also include every member of the crowd that she came into contact with. Imagine the fear that she was feeling if she were discovered. I do not think the crowd would have responded well. She was taking a huge risk, hoping beyond a hope, all hope that after 12 years, she might finally be healed. And upon touching Jesus, it says her bleeding stopped immediately. She sensed in her body that her illness had been healed. We spent a good bit of time talking about healing these last few weeks because Jesus has been doing a lot of that in these chapters of Mark. And I've shared before that I have been fortunate enough to, to have been an instrument of God's supernatural and immediate and physical healing for someone. I know it is possible. I know. We've also spent a good bit of time, particularly in our small groups, talking about what happens when healing doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in the way that we ask or when we ask. And I've also shared before that, that I have prayed for, for physical healing, uh, for a jaw condition that I had. Uh, I absolutely would have described it in Paul's language of a thorn in the flesh, some, that thing that I had no control over, a thing that I could not fix. I prayed for years and years that God would heal me. I, I would go up for prayer at my charismatic church and, and in faith that God could heal me. And have someone lay hands on me and pray over me in tongues and say that God would heal me. And for years I wrestled, often alone, because for everyone on the outside, if they noticed at all, it was, it was minor to them. And if they, if they didn't, for, for most everyone else, it just wasn't a big deal. But for me, it was, it was all tied up in who I was. With, with, with my body what was wrong with me and 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 how could this condition that was causing me physical pain and discomfort as well as emotional and existential angst be the condition that God wanted me to be in but then if God wasn't healing me well what did that mean for me what did that mean about me what did that mean about God In the end, my, my jaw condition was healed through medical intervention, through surgery. Almost 15 years after it was first diagnosed, seven years after I went out for prayer, that prayer counselor in church told me it would be healed. It was healed. Just The timing and the means were not what I had expected. But I do believe that God works through medical intervention too. Scientific advances that weren't around uh, in those days. Surgery and medications and therapy. God has made humanity in the image of God and so the healing that can come through human hands and, and through God inspired human wisdom does not mean that God is not at work in them. I also want to point out that any healing that comes on this side of Christ's return, any healing that comes on this side of Christ's return is incomplete, will be incomplete. Just because Jesus healed this woman's awful condition of bleeding does not mean she was exempted from the common cold or the aches and pains that come with age. My jaw occasionally still causes me trouble. There are plenty of other things that I would ask for healing now. And so, whatever, whatever healing we might experience in this side of Christ's return, let us hold it with gentle hands and cling tightly instead to the healer who promises he will bring the fullness of God's kingdom in the time to come. I spent a lot of time this past month reading and learning from feminist and womanist writers, preachers, and pastors on this particular passage because I recognize there, there are two women in this passage. It's Jesus interacting with them and I recognize the limitations of my understanding of my male privilege and, and my perspective and it's, it's one of the reasons I'm grateful that we have a preaching team for us to talk through scripture with different eyes and, and ears and, and voices. Something that more than one womanist writer pointed out is the agency of this woman. The self-determination of this woman. See, she doesn't have friends to carry her to break through the roof and lower her down so that she can be seen by Jesus. She doesn't have a a wealthy, well-respected father to plead on her behalf. She has every reason at the end of her money, at the end of her health, at the end of her energy, at the end of her rope to have no hope. And yet that powerful thought, if I can just, if I can just, it propels her through her fear and through her exhaustion. If I can just pushes her past propriety and literally through a crowd if I can just drives her to Jesus into her healing what is it for you if I can just what is the if I can just that though you may be at the end of your rope or though you may find yourself as exhausted in as many ways as you can feel exhausted or as disappointed as you can feel like you're disappointed or that your past seems to give you no hope for the future but that something inside of you, let's just say it's the Spirit of God, is asking you to stir yourself enough to take one step, to stretch out one hand, even one finger, to say one word, even if it's just a whispered desperate help, to do whatever it takes To put you in touch with the healer. If I can just. The moment the woman touches Jesus, she's healed. And I'm sure she was hoping to just sneak away. But Jesus seeks her out. Calls her out of the crowd. The woman, full of fear and trembling, came forward. Knowing what had happened to her, she fell down in front of Jesus, as Jairus did, and told him the whole truth. He responded, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, healed from your disease. You see, Jesus wanted to restore her, not just physically, but relationally as well. He wanted to bring healing, not just in her body, but also with her community. And so before the entire crowd he listens to her whole story. Who knows how long that might have taken? 12 years of history. All of the doctors she went to. He applauds her faith. That that action that if I can just He proclaims her healed. And most poignantly, most powerfully, he names her daughter He names her daughter. He restores the daughterhood that was denied by her condition, by her community, by her circumstances. He reminds her of her true identity, her true worth, her true family. This woman whom society would have deemed less valuable, less important, less worthy of Jesus' time for sure. Is the one he names daughter. There is a healing and restoration that is available to every single person the moment we encounter Jesus. It may not always be physical. It may not always be instantaneous. It always may not be absolute and almost certainly not complete the side of Christ's return. But it is a reminder of who we really are in relation to the God of the universe. It is a restoration to the family of God. The zero-sum game problem, though, is that while Jesus has been taking all of this time healing the woman and hearing her story and restoring her to community, Jairus' daughter has succumbed to her illness. She dies. and So we return to the dilemma that we named at the beginning. There is too much need and not enough time. Even, it seems, for Jesus, even the Son of God, it seems, cannot save everyone. But he goes anyway. He takes the girl's parents and his three closest disciples and he goes to the room where she was, another indicator maybe of the affluence and the influence of her family, that she had her own room. Taking her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means in Aramaic, young woman, get up. And suddenly the young woman got up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. This is the tale of two daughters. Women at opposite ends of the social and economic spectrum. Jairus' daughter and the woman with bleeding. A daughter of privilege and a daughter excluded. A daughter revived and a daughter restored. Now today's passage includes something that we've talked about before, a Markin sandwich. Or to use the technical term, intercalation. There's one episode, one event. It's split in two by another. And in this case, the story of Jairus' daughter is interrupted by the healing of the woman with bleeding. And when this happens, we're always invited to ask why. What's the point Mark is trying to make? What's the relationship between these stories? How do they fit together? And what are we to learn to understand about who Jesus is and what his kingdom is about? Well, let me share three things we learned from the interweaving of these two daughters' stories. Three things real quick. First, as I said earlier, in God's kingdom, the salvation and liberation and healing of Jesus are not a zero-sum game. There's not one pot of salvation, liberation, and healing that, like Easter eggs hidden in a, in a yard once they've been claimed, there's none left. It's not how it works. We don't have to scrap and fight and be the fast and first and fastest so that we can get ours. That's not how kingdom economics works. That's not how God's kingdom works. The two daughters occupy different ends of the social spectrum, but neither is excluded. All are welcome. All are invited. We, we, we may not get what we want when we want it, but the goodness and grace of God's kingdom is here for us all to experience. The economics of God's kingdom are not the economics of the world. At the same time, and this is number two, the politics of God's kingdom And by that I mean the way we conduct ourselves and the way we treat each other. The politics of God's kingdom are also not the politics of the world. God's politics demand a different order of priorities. Theologian Ched Myers draws truth out of a comparison of the two daughters, pointing out that Mark very specifically offers that important seemingly side comment detail that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old on the verge of adulthood in the the culture of that day. Myers writes, She, Jairus' daughter, has lived affluently for 12 years and is on the verge of menstruation. In contrast, the bleeding woman had suffered for 12 years, permanently infertile. This number 12, of course, it signifies and symbolizes the 12 tribes of Israel. Thus represents the key to the social meaning of this doublet. Within the family of Israel, these daughters represent the advantaged and the impoverished respectively because of the inequity between these two the body politic of the synagogue is on the verge of death because of the inequity between these two Jesus healing journey must however take a necessary detour that stops to listen to the pain of the excluded listen to this only When the outcast woman is restored to daughterhood, can the daughter of the synagogue also be restored to life? Let me say that again. Only when the outcast woman is restored to daughterhood, can the daughter of the synagogue also be restored to life. That's the faith that privileged must learn from the poor. And that's the word of hope. It's a word of hope to the marginalized, to the disinherited. A healthy, mature, vibrant faith is one that prioritizes the most vulnerable in your church, in your city, in your country, and in our world. For the the people of Israel in the Old Testament, it was the poor, it was widows, it was orphans, it was immigrants. In Matthew 25, Jesus names the hungry and the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. God's politics demand different priorities for us. These are God's priorities. These are God's politics. Attend to the least of these, to the marginalized, to the vulnerable, to the hurting, to the distressed, for we will find our healing there. The third thing, finally, Jesus is Lord of life, Lord over death. Jesus is Lord of life and Lord death over death. This is the first instance in Mark's Gospel where Jesus revived someone from the dead. Jesus has power even beyond the grave. But Jesus also has power before the grave. Okay, both of these women would have been ceremonially unclean. Jairus' daughter because she died and, and, and corpses were unclean and the woman was bleeding because she was unclean. Her bleeding made her unclean and yet Jesus touches those who supposedly make him unclean and he instead makes them clean or whole. Jesus reverses the flow. They don't pollute him, he makes them clean. He restores them to life and to health, and to community, and to possibility, and to hope. Jesus is the Lord of life and Lord over death. And that's why kingdom economics are not a zero-sum game. That's why kingdom politics look upside down compared to the way that the world operates. Friends, I know there are places in each of our lives that seem beyond the reach of God. I know there are places in our lives where we wonder if God really cares because if God did care God would do something about it. What Jesus shows us especially in today's passage is that God does care. Those places are not beyond the reach of God even those things that appear to be dead. Now I don't know what healing looks like for you. I don't know when it will arrive. Like I said, I've had stories in my own life that I didn't know until after, long, long after. But what being part of this community means is that we will be with you when you ask God. And we will be with you while you wait. And we will be with you when you grieve or when you celebrate. And more importantly, that God hears you when you ask. God is with you while you wait. And God is with you as you grieve and as you celebrate. God will bring God's life, goodness, and restoration, liberation, healing, salvation, deliverance. God will bring God's self to be with you in the midst of it all. Not much is promised. Would you pray with me? Lord, when we're, in the, when, when we're in the in-between, when we're waiting for, for you to show up, when we're waiting for our healing, when we're waiting for your deliverance, God, that, that's the, the toughest place to be, in the waiting, in the in-between, in the uncertainty, not knowing w- how the story's going to end. Not knowing if, if we get to celebrate this time or, 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 or if we're if our grief is being extended and our waiting is being extended and that's the hard part about faith is that we can only live it in the time that that we're in so God I pray for every single person here every single person that's hearing my voice God we all have those places that are outside of our control, God, that we need to trust you for, and, and, and maybe they're, they're real raw right now, right at the forefront of our minds, right at the forefront of our, of our thoughts and our feelings. Or God, maybe if we're numb, maybe we've gone through so much and we've been disappointed so many times, it's just easier to put it away. It's easier not to have expectations so we won't be disappointed. Maybe that's where we are. God, wherever we are, whatever we're bringing or ignoring, I pray that your spirit would meet each person with the word, with the touch, with the restoration, with the message that we need to hear and in the way that we can hear it. Maybe even just now it's your spirit saying a word to us dropping an image in our heads maybe maybe it's a conversation that we'll have later today with somebody maybe it's a text or an email that we will receive that we didn't expect to receive god you work in so many wonderful and mysterious ways and so i pray that you would work now that you would work today we want to see you move lord we want to see more of your kingdom on this earth and in our lives and so whatever it is that you are asking of us, whatever it is that you have to say to us, give us the ears to hear it, give us the hearts to receive it, and give us courage to respond to it. For we pray these things in the mighty and saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen.